Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. So 63 million tons of wasted food in the U.S., that is a major number. If you look at the market value, $408 billion of food going to waste. So when you look at the climate impact, and I would also say just like the common sense behind the issue, it's very natural to say we need to do something better here. And that's what happened to us as a business. And so we have an entire front end. We go in with retailers. We help them understand where wasted food is coming from, food donation practices, what's happening in their supply chain. And we're continuing to build those solutions out within our business. All right, Ryan, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I've had the chance to learn a lot from you in, in a couple previous conversations, but for many of the folks listening in, it's probably their uh, their first time. I'd love to start with just you know diving straight in, the founding story of Divert and how you started kind of thinking about food waste and recognizing all the challenges associated with it and the opportunities associated with it. So I started my career in the hydrogen space coming out of college, went into Raytheon Missile Defense, sort of a non-traditional track. And it was, you know, during my period at Raytheon, met some other folks that were at business school. And that's where I was made aware of the problem within wasted food. The, you know, the back of a grocery store, I had never been into the back of a grocery store. I never thought about, you know, the impact of food going to waste. Mm. And it was really that was the kickoff of the journey. So coming together, my background with distributed hydrogen systems, dovetailed really nicely with the founding team and what we were looking for from an engineering perspective. How do you build anaerobic digestion systems? At that time, it was the back of a grocery store. So, you know, not such a great idea from a scaling perspective. <laughs> but <laughs> you think about the mechanics and the ability to have distributed infrastructure, wasn't a great idea, but we built one and it worked. My background within hydrogen kind of dovetailed really nicely into this type of you know, distributed infrastructure. And that was sort of the rage in, you know, the 2010 timeframe. Got it. Uh, everything going distributed. From there, we went into the first project with Hannaford Brothers. We had our first system built, but we knew the project wasn't going to scale. The technology wasn't going to scale on that approach. So we were running out of cash, as most startups do. There's always this <laughs> dramatic inflection point, And we were at it. I think we had like $20,000 left in the bank circa 2010. And at that point, we knew that we needed to do something different, think bigger. And that's where we met up with Kroger in Southern California. And that was our first major commercial success, getting that project with them built. That was a very large project at their distribution center, major opportunity for us as a business. And also, you know, I think it was a vote of confidence from Kroger to say, look, we're going to partner with you. We're going to do something different within this wasted food space. How do we do something bigger, different within the state of California? Right. And that was really the start of the business. That's really what launched us. Yeah. Let's talk about that first kind of partnership with Kroger and, and what building that out looked like. What were, what kind of, to paint a picture for the folks listening in, what are all the various components of that operation that needed to be in place to make it attractive both for you and for Kroger? I, you know, start with the financial model. So, we really needed to understand what does it mean to run one of these facilities? What are the incentives? What are the operating expenses? What's the capital cost? So this had never been done before. Mm. And it was completely new for Kroger. Kroger brought all of the rigor 
of their processes into the conversation. And they have a very high bar mm. on how they think about these things. And I think that ended up making us a better company. We learned from Kroger on how they were approaching you know, such a large, complex capital project. And then our responsibility was to really understand what does it take? And that meant you know, looking at other facilities, other processes throughout Europe, understanding how the integration of the technology, not only within the interconnection of those components that we brought together for the first time, but also how does this work for Kroger? How do you use reverse logistics to bring back all of this food that can't be sold or donated from their stores and get it back to this facility in a really efficient way? How do you then offload the energy and what does it mean to be behind the meter and the economics incentives behind that? So a lot of engineering discovery going along with that financial model. And for folks who might not even know all that much about what an anaerobic digestion facility is or does, how would you break that down for them? The anaerobic digestion is a, a naturally occurring process. It happens in lagoons. It happens in bogs. If you've ever heard the term swamp gas, that's really effectively <laughs> what's happening. Beneath the lower is, you know, the swamp is degrading biological material and it's producing, you know, a methane rich gas, which is we call biogas. Within that process, we're effectively taking that out of the swamp, putting it into a, a tank, what we call a reactor, the bioreactor. You keep it in an oxygen-free environment. You keep it mixed. You keep it at temperature. And you know, as long as you're, do, you're feeding the bacteria the proper mix of nutrients, minerals, and you know, it results into a naturally occurring gas. So what does that mean upstream? It means that we are taking food that can't be sold or donated. You have to remove things that are inert and would not biodegrade, at least on an efficient basis. So for us, that's plastics, metals, glass, all the packaging you see with food. Right. All that's going to be removed. And we're putting that into a form of slurry that allows us to then use that anaerobic digestion technology in a really stable way. I think this is a really good time to also kind of start to identify and tie together some of the various ways in which, or all of the various ways in which this can be a pretty meaningful climate solution, I think, starting on the front end with the food waste in and of itself. In an ideal world, there wouldn't be nearly as much wasted food as there is. But, you know, working with what we have today, there is a lot of it. Making sure that that doesn't end up in a landfill, that has benefits. But then the second kind of component of also then actually using it to create something valuable. But I figure you're also uh, in the trenches, so you might be able to help me tie together the way I laid that out a little bit. Yeah, I'd call it an evolution within the recycling space. So in 2010, everything was zero waste. So get my material out of landfill. A really important problem to solve. There's about 17 years left of landfill capacity in the entire country. Mm. So we either build more landfills expand landfills, or we come up with better solutions. Mm -hmm. So I, that was really the impetus within 2010. Serves a lot of climate impact purpose. But I think what happened, and I know personally for me what happened and what happened for us as a business, once you start pulling that product out of the landfill, you start to look at it differently because now it's a consolidated stream and there's just this natural question that becomes like, where is all of this food coming from? And you naturally start to think about, well, what about all of the nutrients, the transportation, the cooling, the labor, the farmland, all of the resources that go into this and it's ending up here. So 63 million tons of wasted food in the US, that is a major number. Yeah. If you look at the market value, $408 billion of 
food going to waste. So when you look at the climate impact, and I would also say just like the common sense behind the issue, it's very natural to say we need to do something better here. And that's what happened to us as a business. And so we have an entire front end. We go in with retailers. We help them understand where wasted food is coming from, food donation practices, what's happening in their supply chain. And we're continuing to build those solutions out within our business. Yeah, there's something I always come back to in what you were saying about common sense in addition to obviously there being significant climate impact. Some of the stuff, it just seems like as society advanced over the past hundred years, like so many of these different things just became out of sight, out of mind. And when that happens and people can't necessarily see where food is coming from in the first place or then where their wasted food goes, it's just a lot of abstraction that then, you know, that's how you end up with some of these problems, I think, where it's like no one's really looking at it day to day. And then a hundred years down the line, you've got the situation that really makes absolutely no sense where a ton of wasted food that's wasted energy gets put on a train that's fired by diesel. For me in New York, it probably gets sent to West Virginia or South Carolina because there's no room here. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's kind of perplexing how we got here, but it's definitely time to reverse it. Again, it's this natural evolution. If you go, you reference the industrial revolution and what happened. So there are stats that talk about the number of farmers to a population required and how the number of farmers with automation industrialization have decreased. Mm -hmm. And as that has decreased, we've also gotten further from our food. We're not valuing food like we were even 50 years ago. And if you had a garden and you were growing food in your backyard and you had to care for, you were weeding, you saw the seed (laughs) go into the ground and you're putting all of this work and labor and maybe love into your food, Mm -hmm. When you grow that carrot and it comes out a little bit odd or maybe a little bit small, I'm going to bet that you're going to eat that carrot <laughs> compared to going to the grocery store and you want like the perfect looking carrot because that's what you're paying for and you're disassociated with it. So you don't value it as much as if you're you know, directly connected with your food. So I do agree with you that there has been, I'll say within an evolution, a degradation of that relationship. No, it's definitely true. I mean, even as myself having this conversation with you, I'm thinking about last time I went to the grocery store, it's like kind of in a rush. You're still not thinking about all the energy and labor and transportation that went into getting that stuff there. And and it's hard to hold all of that in your mind at any given time, but it is time for us to start thinking about things in that capacity a little bit more. Before we talk more about kind of all of that's happened since that first partnership with Kroger, I think it'd also be valuable to kind of paint a picture of industries or markets where they might be a little bit more advanced in the US in terms of thinking about some of these things. So, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood spending summers in Germany where my mom's from and biogas and even anaerobic digestion facilities. Like, even if I didn't really understand it as a 10 year old kid, I could kind of see that like there was more of a footprint and a presence of all that stuff out there. So, you know, as you studied Europe to get ideas for your business in the US? What were some of the things you learned and why are they a little bit more advanced than we are at all this stuff? So it's a great corollary. It's someplace that we look to to say, what could the future hold? What's working? What's maybe not working as well? Where's the focus? The landfilling cost in Europe, obviously land squeezed, very different than here in the US. You referenced that trash in New York is put on train. It goes to West Virginia, it goes to Ohio, trash here in Massachusetts is put onto a train and brought to South Carolina. So we have land available to us, Europe, not so much. And I would also say the sensitivity. So the cost of landfilling is far greater in Europe than it is here in the US. Mm. So that's one of the first differentiators. The second one is 
the focus on renewables has been in Europe longer, and I would say with a larger focus. And that results into the value of the energy on the back end. Hmm. So you're incentivized from the front end because it's more expensive, but you also have an incentive on the back end in the form of really valuing the carbon that you're avoiding within that fuel. So you have a more responsible fuel, and then they could associate that with a value. I would also add that with within Europe, there's still evolution. So France in 2016 passed a law banning edible food from going to landfill. Significant change to this is only about keeping food waste out of landfills to now we're looking at this as wasted food and how do we do that better? California followed that shortly thereafter in October of 2016 and passed SB 1383. Same law, same approach. We're going to ban food that is edible from going into even recycling processes. Washington State has now followed up Hmm. with HB 1799. So there is an evolution and we're sort of hitting this stride now within the wasted food space to really look at this problem holistically. Yeah, so it sounds like there's some good stuff percolating in the U.S. too. Probably a good time to kind of fast forward because there's a a big gap between, or a big gap in time between when you all had that first kind of initial success with Kroger and all of the work that you're doing today. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of the past 10 years, and then we can get into what you all are up to in 2023. Yeah, 10 years is a lifetime (laughs) in a startup. (laughs) Yeah. The last 10 years, I think it's a journey of evolution of our business model, understanding the industry that we are in. It is also awareness and helping customers understand that there is a better way. ESG, Mm -hmm. tailwinds at the same time coming into place to really bring focus. We have a really unique situation within our company that we're not pulled into states that have food waste bans primarily. Mm. We're aligned with customers that have ESG mandates that are pushing into market. So we work with Target across nearly the entire country. We have now taken the process that we rolled out with Target in California, and we're now doing this in the upper Midwest, the Southeast, in markets that you wouldn't traditionally think about as Mm. food waste diversion locations. So that all coming together at the same time, you know, this thing called RNG, so renewable natural gas, it used to be renewable electricity, doesn't really well, we talked about the distributed, the difficulties within distributed infrastructure. Producing electricity from biogas is really inefficient. Putting it into existing infrastructure pipelines and getting that gas to others who can make better use, more efficient use of that fuel actually works better for us. It's better for our carbon intensity and the life cycle analysis of our processes and our facilities. Got it. So, all of these things coming together at the same time has allowed an industry to find a new footing almost like this clean tech 2.0 within the last couple of years. Yeah. And I I reckon that that focus in clean tech 2.0, as well as kind of the administration's current focus on policy, even if it's not always directly related to your business, that's kind of a good tailwind too. And I'd be curious, you know, in 2023, you all have been quite busy. There were some good announcements around significant capital raised. You recently just opened up a new facility in California as well. So let's talk a little bit about you know some of the stuff that you're currently building and maybe how it's different from what was being built 10 years ago and then where else you want to expand from here. So you referenced our projects. We just broke ground in Turlock, California on our first on-hour balance sheet integrated facility. So this will be roughly 100,000 tons per year of wasted food, a really small 
percentage of the overall wasted food generated, using that platform to provide retailers with a consistent, reliable solution that is also most favorable in a carbon intensity to manage their wasted food, using that platform to bring awareness to where food is coming from within their supply chain to help them work through prevention, drive food donation. I would argue that we are probably one of the first implementers of SB 1383 and the 20% diversion. That has been our focus for years. So it's great to see all of these things coming together in California. It's fantastic that Turlock is California is our first full location. We are working on several other facilities. We are, I'd say we're somewhat conservative in our approach that Mm. we are not just scaling across the country as fast as we can (laughs) because we could go very quickly. Mm. But we're trying to do this in a really responsible way, really understand the markets and the needs and, you know, produce a business that's going to be here for the next 50 years. That's our approach. And who's the kind of the buyer, if you will, of the renewable natural gas that you produce there? Like you mentioned kind of that it makes more sense for you to pipe it to someone else that knows how to make best use of it. What does that side of the equation look like for that Turlock facility once it's built? So, you know, there are really two components of renewable natural gas. There's the brown gas, the gas that we produce, the physical molecules, and then there are the attributes of that gas. So the brown gas will be put into PG&E's pipeline. And, you know, that's worth whatever the commodity value of gas is. And then we have the attributes of that gas, and that is contracted with BP. They have created a very large trading desk where they can identify voluntary markets. They find businesses that that want this gas, effectively the attributes of this gas, and they can market that. So we have a contract in place for them for our first three facilities. And you know, that relationship is important for us to solve that front end problem. It actually enables us to put the infrastructure in place to keep wasted food out of landfill, but most importantly, to help drive awareness on where is wasted food coming from so mm-hmm. that we can find solutions. As a business, we're again really unique. We are incentivized to help our customers reduce what they send us. And that's such a odd thing in the <laughs> infrastructure space. <laughs> But we've put together our contracts, the business model, the customer alignment, and it's actually working. You know, we're inve- making more investments now than we ever have into reducing wasted food. Mm. And our customers are excited about it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it certainly won't happen for a long time. But in a perfect world, I guess there wouldn't be any wasted food. And then you'd have to think differently about your business. But <laughs> that's a long ways off. <laughs> right. It's- it's a long ways off, but there's always going to be food safety recalls. Yeah. There will be refrigeration systems that fail. There will be three-year-olds in the world that do not finish their plate <laughs> and you know their parents can only eat so much to prevent that. So I think that <laughs> there is some need. UN SDG 12.3 calls for a 50% reduction by the year 2030. Right. Wow. And so right now that would be it would still leave us with over 30 million tons per year of wasted food across the country. The infrastructure we're building out would tackle about 5% of today's total wasted food. So even at that point, we would still be 10% of all wasted food across the country. Yeah. And that's an incredibly ambitious target. I mean, I hope we hit it, but there's definitely, uh, there's plenty of feedstock. Unfortunately. Yes. And you'd mentioned life cycle emissions analysis. I'd be curious, you know, I think it'd be cool to, for people listening in, I think that's something that a lot of folks would be really interested in hearing a little bit more about. You know, maybe you can kind of paint a picture for folks of, in broad strokes, of what the emissions 
analysis looks like and why and how you have the confidence that this is really, you know, a carbon negative solution through and through. So Argonne National Laboratory started this process of life cycle analysis. So it's really an accounting of all carbon that goes into a process Mm -hmm. and the carbon prevented. And it could be a carbon equivalent of methane emissions to atmosphere as an example. And that was adopted within California because of the low carbon fuel standard, really RNG. So the RNG industry then took that model and has now made it mainstream. And it's not only, when I say mainstream, it's adopted and acknowledged by many parties. So it's the volunteer market. You don't even have to use that within the LCFS structure within California because it's regarded as a true system, a science-based approach to understanding Mm -hmm. the intensity, the carbon intensity of your operation. So it will factor things like how far do you have to go to get your feedstock or wasted food? So if you're driving across the country, well, that counts against your process. You can't just say, I'm going to drive to New York City and bring it to California. That will be a carbon loser. Right. So part of that, and then also the electricity that we use within the facility, the employees that drive to our facilities, how far Mm. are they driving? Wow. How many employees does it take to run the facility? Other consumables that are all based on data and research. So it's not a perfect model. It is complex, but it gives you a really good idea of how well are we doing and how well are our decisions being made. So should we put in solar cells? based on what type of energy are we getting into our plant? So the Pacific Northwest, a lot of hydropower, probably don't need to make the investment into solar cells right. versus other markets like the Northeast, a lot of energy coming from the natural gas industry, put in solar cells. And so those are the things that allow us to make decisions within our facilities so we can have a true carbon accounting right. uh, within our processes. And so we highlighted some of the areas in which you, you know, the in the kind of accounting book, you'd have emissions going up based on certain things. To spell it out for folks, I'd also be interested to list kind of all the different ways in which emissions are being abated or reduced in the process. You know, a big one that comes to mind for me is, you know, what happens if that wasted food had ended up in a landfill? I think something like 15% of all U.S. methane emissions come from landfill. And that's not all purely from wasted food. That's kind of mostly from organic waste as a broader category, but certainly a lot of it is probably from wasted food, but what are the other ways in which the process also reduces emissions? So the avoided landfill emissions, what we get credit for today is the baseline that a landfill is capturing 50% of the methane generated within the landfill. I think there's a lot of studies that have come out recently, NASA and now within the EPA, that suggest that, well, it's actually more like 75% of that gas is escaping landfills. Mm. Yeah. But we have to use the baseline of 50%. And that kind of speaks to the you know, the opportunities within the model. But the biggest opportunity, we don't get credit for reducing wasted food. Interesting. So every pound that we reduce within the market, within the region, that does not count. You know, I think it's a common sense approach to say that keeping food within the supply chain, not producing energy from food, which would be terrible as a core mission. So we'll do the right thing. I do think that regulations, models, they will catch up. Yeah. But for now, we're going to, you know, heads down, do the right thing. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. It's obvious in the way that I think about it, that that's a value add, but uh, hopefully that does evolve. And, and so the early signs of that evolving are within the voluntary market. So when folks look at our the fuel that we can produce, so the renewable natural gas, and they say, well, this is an interesting thing. How do I decarbonize my 
business, if I'm producing automobiles or pharmaceuticals, what gas can I buy yeah. to be more responsible? Because I can't easily displace, I need heat. And so where do I totally. get heat? If you're in certain markets, certain times a year, consistency, et cetera. So what happens, folks resonate with the story. And so they say, okay, I understand you're bringing in wasted food. You can say, here's what the donation practices are within your entire feedstock supply chain. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're doing. I want to be in this story. How do I participate? And it actually drives the value of that fuel up. Mm -hmm. So you're actually getting value for the work that we're doing on the front end, but that's only happening in the voluntary market right now. And I'm curious, are there, you know, we've talked about how Europe's a lot more ahead at this, but that there are some good signs that it's starting to take off in the US. Are there folks that are trying to do effectively something similar to what you're trying to do in the US? Do you see direct competition or is it more kind of indirect to folks that are doing something in RNG, but are maybe not thinking about wasted food or folks that are doing good stuff with wasted food, but not really thinking about RNG? We are in the middle, I think, of an industry trying to get built, trying to get its footing. There are other companies within the industry. It's a tough thing to do. We're mm -hmm. trying to build infrastructure you know, that could be upwards of $100 million per facility. We're trying to then source a material that's currently going to landfill. So human nature, it's very easy to throw you know, wasted food into your trash and not separate it. That is the path of least resistance. So it takes a consumer being educated, businesses being educated, which means that you have to build your entire vertical integration if you want to succeed within this industry. Right. We have been doing that for the past, you know, 16 years. We're doing more of it. We're leaning into other verticals. I would say within the industry, there are other examples where that was not done. And you do rely on there is has been some reliance on the existing waste infrastructure, waste processes. And that's not going well. There are there's a recent bankruptcy that's been announced. And, you know, I don't think that's good for the industry. I don't think that's good for any one of us. You know, we want people to succeed. We as you know, citizens, but also as a business within the cohort, we want more investment dollars flowing in to say, great, this is an industry that's going to thrive. Let's see some great success stories. Yeah. I do think we're going to be we have been that success story. Right. We're going to do that on a larger scale. And I think that will accelerate the story nationwide because people will say, okay, so it is possible, then why aren't we doing more of this? And it does make sense in parallel that it'd be good if there were other players doing something similar or with some modifications to it to kind of grow the total pie. And I think you more or less just answered it, but I'll ask it anyways. I'd be, you know, if I put my investor hat on and asked you kind of what the most defensible component of the business strategy is. It sounds like a big part of it is the work that you've done to vertically integrate over 16 years. But what else comes to mind when I ask that? I look at us as almost a picket fence strategy because there are so many individual things that we have done and problems that we have solved over the last 16 years that put us in a, an incredibly unique position. So our ability to depackage wasted food, so remove microplastics. Yeah. We just got a, another permit for a new facility, and you're starting to see these things come within the permits now. That 99 point, you know, X percent of all plastics need to be removed. Mm -hmm. I don't know of anybody in the industry who can do that except for us, because we have been focused on it. Again, focusing on the right things because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So we have that entire DPAC. We have an operating history across the business, operating anaerobic digesters, working with municipalities, utilities, regulators. 
So that is also a benefit. Our customer relationships and how we have integrated and decarbonized the logistics of wasted food, the aggregation and the scale of wasted food. I think our go-to-market strategy and how we enter mm-hmm. a market that this isn't building a $100 million facility, we can have a gentle approach to a market to do some market discovery, price discovery, building out the team, you know, the intellectual property, the capital now behind us. We just have a tremendous amount of momentum mm. that I do think we have a very large sense of responsibility that we need to make this industry work. Because if we don't, there really isn't a close number two right. within the US who is going to make this industry work. Yeah. And on that note, I'd be interested to zoom to kind of look ahead to, let's say, you know, 2030, you're moving kind of very methodically. And you already mentioned that you could move faster, but you want to do it in the right way. Where would you like to be in, in 2030? And what are some of the ways in which you measure that? Is it you know number of facilities or tons of wasted food that you're being able to prevent from going into landfills and turn into energy? So 2030 for us would be a full build out. That is 30 facilities. That puts us within wow. yeah. 100 miles of 80% of the US population. Wow. That will be the build out. And from that point, it is using that platform to go further into the food supply chain to understanding where wasted food is occurring. I think that's how we extract the most value from those assets. It puts us effectively at the end of the pipe of the supply chain. So we see all of the food coming out of 80% of the US population. We Mm -hmm. then can integrate, partner, introduce technology solutions upstream to help our customers reduce wasted food. It's a really unique value proposition that doesn't exist within the waste space today. Mm. Nobody's really going into a business. You could maybe point to manufacturing if you had a metal fabrication and to say, look, you're wasting this much steel. There's opportunity to optimize your processes. It's us doing that, but within the food supply chain, far more complex, distributed, fragmented. Yeah. And from that, I think we are an incredibly successful business. We're doing something that the market needs. Nobody else can replicate. Yeah. And when you're talking to a, a steel manufacturer, saving them a few percentage points of steel is, is a pretty economic thing. But you know, talking to someone about wasted food, it's probably not exactly quite the same calculus for them. On an individual basis, it isn't. But if you actually, if you look at a retailer and let's say that you know the average grocery store throws away about $40,000 per month of food. Mm their net profit margins for that same store, about the same number, about $40,000 per month. If Mm, we can eliminate half of their wasted food, we can grow their net profit margins by 50%. Like there's no other value proposition within the retail space. And that's what's interesting about who we go to market with and how we work with retailers and how we line up these incentives for us as a business, taking those learnings and then bringing them into other verticals like restaurants. Wasted food within the restaurant space, very thin margins, really tough industry. How do we help make them better? And we have some interesting collaborations right now looking at the operating systems within the restaurant space. How do we support that looking at what leads through the back door? I'm glad that you said that. That's a good reframe for me and for my edification. To pivot a little bit, I think, you know, hopefully not, but there's probably a few folks listening in who, when they start hearing about renewable natural gas and natural gas pipelines, they start kind of raising yellow flags in their mind. And they're like, hmm, like we're here to talk about climate solutions. It sounds like some of this, you know, really, if it goes well, cements natural gas infrastructure for the long haul. And, you know, my perspective is I've got a lot of appreciation for just how reliant on natural gas the power sector is, the built environment is. But 
Have you gotten some of that pushback when you talk to certain types of investors that are a little bit more climate focused or with respect to all the announcements that you all have been putting out this year? And how do you kind of like navigate that kind of a razor's edge between the people that want to be really purist about the way that we tackle the energy transition and talk about climate versus folks that are a little bit more pragmatic? Yeah, I, I think this the discussion of energy transition became a really negative thing. And we work in some more progressive markets. The conversation for us is really about wasted food. Yeah. If somebody wants to buy a byproduct from us and we're doing something responsible with it and they value that, great, because that's going to enable everything we're doing on the front end. So I think we need to take a really holistic view of the problem, because if we wait for absolute perfection, we're going to get nowhere. Yeah. We have to start making moves and progressing through and you know, you reference industries, but it's also like the materials industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, Teslas are fantastic, but they're filled with plastic as well. <laughs> like plastic enables us to do things. Plastic is an amazing material. There are more expensive forms that are cheaper for the environment to create plastics, but that's not really prolific. As, as the market isn't really allowing for those things to happen yet. So we need to innovate. We need to be more efficient as a society, which means every of food waste that we keep out of going into landfill, or we even better keep it in the food supply chain, that is less fertilizer, it's less water, it's less transportation, it's less labor. Yeah. Like that's really where we need to focus. And while we're doing that, we'll produce some fuel on the back end. Right. We're always going to need energy. Society is, is heavily reliant on in- energy. The fuel that we produce tomorrow, we could be creating hydrogen. Methane is a really flexible fuel. So for me, it's the efficiency of the overall process. That's why I love the life cycle analysis. Yeah. Because there's no arguing. Like, here's the science behind it. We have to listen to the science. And if we can progress through that and make an even better process, then that is exactly what we're going to do as the market allows. I deeply resonate with the pursuit of absolute perfection kind of getting in the way, even of good debate sometimes. It's like, even if you take something like a hydroelectric dam, which produces very clean electricity, you know, there's plenty of people that take issue with that. You're disrupting the migratory pattern of salmon or what have you, or impacting downstream ecosystems significantly. And I'm not trying to say by any means that they're wrong about that piece of it, but there are trade-offs to be made with pretty much any climate solution. So just being really thoughtful about, as you said, what's the life cycle analysis? What are all the different ways in which this is beneficial to a bunch of different kind of problems? It's definitely my preferred way of approaching it. I agree. I think those voices are very important to getting to where we need to go. If there was no debate, if there were no checks and balances, there would be no progression Mm, in our solutions. So we need those voices. We need people to demand better We talked before about our customers and their ESG incentives. It is their shareholders. It Mm -hmm. is their customers. And that all comes down to what the people demand from their returns, from their retail partners. And that comes back into what solutions are we then going to be able to go after? So I welcome it. I think it's incredibly important for the industry and it keeps everybody moving in the right direction. Yeah. Zooming out, I'd be curious, you know, it can be something that's completely outside of the work that you're doing day to day, but there's so much happening in climate tech, clean tech 2.0. What are some other things that have caught your eye that, you know, you're super excited about and you're like, whoa, if I hadn't been doing this for the past 20 years, maybe I'd go give that a go. I'm such a pragmatist that some solar car was really important to my education (laughs) in university and work. So I think where we have come with electric vehicles is exciting. I am not an early adopter yet. I have too many other 
balance risks in my life. <laughs> but I do think energy storage and how we work within transportation, vehicles, electric vehicles, hydrogen, there's work to be done. But I think it's really exciting that the conversation continues and the push is there, the finance, the dollars are behind it as well right. to make those things work. So how do you bring hydrogen into the electrification of our vehicles? Interesting. Yeah. And does the same hold for you in terms of an interest in seeing everything that's happening on the energy storage front for the power grid too? Like that's one of the things that I think is obviously most important as renewable energy's share of power generation increases. It seems like it'll sort of cap out if we don't find really good ways to use hydrogen and other forms of grid scale energy storage to make more use of it. What I remember back in like 2000, it was the idea of pumping water to the top of a dam. Yeah. And what is the efficiency of that process? So these ideas have been around forever. It's almost just like this renaissance or this rediscovery <laughs> of these really simple things. There's an individual who was on solar car at Clarkson University with me. He's went on to, to co-found ESS, which is a you know energy storage. And I remember, you know, his lead professor, that flywheel technology was something that they were talking <laughs> about then as well. So, you know, my background in hydrogen, like these things have been going on for over 20 years. Right. The commercial success to getting the technology to where it needs to be. I remember watching the documentary Who Killed the Electric Vehicle like when GM produced their first electric <laughs> car, like these things are not necessarily new. I think like one of the first vehicles ever produced was electric. Interesting. So it's how do you commercialize these things? Mm -hmm. How do you make them ubiquitous within the industry? How do you create that market? Same thing with food waste, same thing with anaerobic digestion. It's tough to make a business from something, from an idea. And also just building all the infrastructure, it seems like we've gotten a lot more reticent to do that in the US or it's gotten a lot harder. So we need to get back to our are building ways from 50, 60, 70 years ago. But yeah, pumped hydro is a funny one. I think, you know, there's some wild stat that even though batteries are slowly eating into it, something like 75% of grid scale energy storage in the US is still, as you said, just kind of pumping water up and down a hill and, and it works. So why not do it? Simple wins. Yeah. We don't need to complicate things. Um, well, it's been fantastic having you on, Ryan. I want to make sure I close by, you know, giving you an opportunity if there's specific calls to action for folks listening in that might be interested in the work that you're doing or even kind of coming to work with you on these problems. What's a good way for them to keep up with all the good work that you're doing and, and look for opportunities? I think it's podcasts like this. It's RPR. If these are things that you're energized by joining our team, we are growing and scaling across the country. We are very passionate about this. It's a call to action. Think about you know, the next time you're at a restaurant, you're at a grocery store and you're passing over that that slightly blemished apple, where that apple is going to end up. Because if you don't take action, uh, the person behind you is probably not going to. And that's what propagates wasted food and what's happening across society. So maybe think about those things. Yeah, I love bringing it back to something that folks can can actionably do in their in their day to day lives. And and I'll try to do the same. Great, Nick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. I'll try to make it out to one of those facilities soon, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Ryan. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.